ask if the Glasgow Climate Pact is a momentous agreement or just a pop-out and hear directly from those present at the Climate Talks in Glasgow in the November episode of the Solar Media Podcast, supported by Solar Energy UK. Hello and welcome to this November 2021 episode of the Solar Media Podcast. My name's Liam Stoker. Joining me as ever is Andy Colthorpe. Um, Andy, we are very much basking in a post-COP26 glow, I think. Is that right? Uh, is it a warm sort of uh, comforting glow or a global warming type warm glow? Somewhere, somewhere between 1.5 and 2.4 degrees warmer, I think we feel. Oh dear. So, uh, yes, this is, of, of course, the news that uh, there there was a Glasgow Climate Pact, which was agreed. Um, I think the terminology used is that uh, it's kept 1.5 degrees, so what, kept the, the 1.5 degrees uh, ambition alive, um, but others would suggest it's on life support rather than uh, alive and kicking. Yeah, um, I have to admit, I've not looked anywhere near as uh, deeply into COP26 as many people have, including your good self. I believe you actually, uh, uh, well, I, I don't believe, I know, uh, you went along for, for a day uh, in, the, uh, yes. in, the, in the circus, as it were, during the first week, wasn't it? Yeah, I, um, I was present for Energy Day, um, so I managed managed to uh, go to a couple of the events um, and set in on a couple of the uh, plenary sessions, which was um, certainly interesting from a uh, event perspective. It's unlike any other event that I've probably been to from, well, certainly in a professional capacity at least, um, but seeing all of the action um and kind of meeting some of the people involved in that was was, was really good um and uh, there's been we've, we've covered plenty of of the the ins and outs of, of cop 26 across a lot of our channels already um obviously the energy day was the week before the kind of cut and thrust of the negotiations and um certainly before china and india staged their their last minute um intervention shall we say um, to, to water down a lot of the, the stronger language around um, certainly coal and, and, and fossil fuel subsidies. So um, I think there, there's there's a lot to unpack um, and there's there's a lot of kind of direction, certainly the language that from, from, from the climate pacts that uh, as renewable energy professionals would probably be uh, more steered towards is this, this ambition to really ramp up deployment of clean energy um and then there's obviously attaching energy storage to that as well i mean china and india both recently you know just in the past few months had quite severe energy crises uh you know caused by a shortfall of energy uh and it just seems like it was hugely unfortunate timing on that really wasn't it um i've heard quite a lot of talk as you say about I believe it was India that required or asked for a, a sort of toning down of the language around the coal phase out, uh, which I guess is pretty unfortunate. But COP26 did also include India's first national target uh, towards net zero at uh, 2070, yeah. which is, some would say, uh, 
kind of too late. Uh, it is a lot later than a lot of the other uh, pledges, which are generally for 2050, uh, with the exception of China, which is 2060. And some regions are a bit earlier than 2050. But nonetheless, signaling that ambition at all, um, I gather, is a pretty big step. Uh, and also, India just added an extra 50 gigawatts to its 400 existing 450 gigawatt uh, renewable energy target uh, for 2030, I believe that that yeah, deadline is. Yeah, yeah, to- 2030. So yeah, so 500 500 gigawatts is pretty incredible. Uh, it's like nothing seen before in the world. That's you know like the equivalent of 250 kind of average size nuclear reactors, I guess, worth of energy capacity. Uh, so that's pretty incredible. It hinges on a lot of things. Whether India, because India is quite keen on building uh, domestic manufacturing capacity and domestic supply chains. Uh, we'll have to see whether it can do that and support its industries. Uh, but also to say, you know, it's not to say targets can't be met, can't be exceeded. Uh, you know, it could do better than 2070. And I think that's one of the key things that uh, amid a lot of despair and a lot of rightful criticism at a certain lack of ambition at COP26, I think it is reasonable to say that at least we have something you know i always hate saying at least when we're talking about apocalyptic potentially apocalyptic things because it's you know it's a big deal but at least we have a mechanism in place that we can talk about these things on at least an annual basis uh globally i think that's very very important um yeah it's it's it's, it's quite interesting because you have there is particularly around or approaching the final days of the summit there was a lot of discussion around whether cop um, is fit for purpose or whether the, the cops are fit for purpose rather um, but it that, like for obviously it's, it's not a perfect solution um, I doubt we'll ever get a perfect solution when you have uh, 200 plus countries involved that are discussing what is essentially a, a significant shift in um, economic industry um, I, I, you're not going to get a, a general consensus easily um, but it is the only real mechanism like you say that gets those countries around the table once a year and and aims to to thrash it out so it's it's definitely an imperfect solution but it's it's sort of the best we've got and it's down to the people involved to make it work yeah yeah and i think it's good to see that it's uh, you know it keeps bringing the climate conversation into the mainstream um, you know, that said, there's always this, this lingering sense of, um, how can I illustrate this? So the other day I saw a friend of mine, concerned citizen posted something on social media, uh, about is one of those polls on what's the best way to reduce your carbon footprint. And it was things like, you know, eat less meat, uh, do your washing at a certain time, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's all valid, but I noticed that there wasn't as an option on there, lobby the heck out of your politicians, and make them do something and, you know, help create an, an economic, social, techno, techno, social, economic, if you will, framework uh, for systemic change. You know, that wasn't an option on there. It's kind of passing the, the buck back onto the uh, the everyday person. So, yeah, so there's a lot going on there. I think you mentioned earlier, and you know, I guess you're trying to steer me onto the industry chat that we're we're supposed to be known for. 
uh, <laughs> rather than the personal <laughs> reflections. Um, yeah. yeah, so there was, you know, the, one of the reasons why I didn't look at that deeply into COP26 is frankly, there wasn't that much in it in terms of energy storage. Uh, there wasn't even, I mean, there's a lot of general talk about renewables and I'm sure we can get onto solar in a bit if there's time. And I know our friends at sure. Solar Energy UK would, would like to talk about that. But there were some um, some things that coincided with or announcements that were made to coincide with the uh, with COP26. So during the uh, conference, there was the launch of a global long duration energy storage council. Uh, and it was uh, spearheaded by uh, CEOs of various organizations, uh, including those noted climate warriors, BP. Um, Obviously. Yep. Everyone's uh, conspiracy theorists' favorites, Bill Gates and his breakthrough energy ventures. Uh, and among alongside that, uh, 22, 23 other founder members, uh, which include uh, some very familiar names for readers of Energy Storage News, uh, active in the long duration uh, energy storage space, ranging from electrochemical, like flow batteries, uh, to mechanical, uh, like liquid air energy storage. Um, there's a fuel cell company in there and uh, several thermal energy storage companies. So that was quite exciting. I think the launch of a, a trade association in itself, forgive me for saying this, Solar Energy UK, it's not necessarily <laughs> something that I would get that excited about, but I think it is taking responsibility for the long duration energy storage space, uh, which is you know something that we, we all want to see kind of, uh, you know, taking off. Um, there was a few sort of isolated announcements from around the world as well. Uh, there was a pretty big deal uh, between AES, the parent company of uh, battery storage uh, manufacturer and integrator Fluence and technology provider Fluence. Uh, so AES is going to bring the installed energy storage capacity of Chile uh, up in partnership with the Chilean government uh, by more than uh, 300 megawatts by 2023. Uh, so that's quite exciting. AES have already got a sizable project uh, under construction in the country. And yeah, there's a, a couple more things like that uh, around the conference. And we had a couple of... Um, but yeah, that to say the battery storage itself wasn't really mentioned and for what I saw reported anyway uh, from the talks. And we did have a couple of guest blogs for the site uh, from folks, both from companies in the UK, actually, and their leadership uh, advocating for, you know, more emphasis on battery storage uh, at and after uh, COP26. Yeah, I think I think that's that's pretty much a summary of what we saw across the board for renewable energy, really. Um, there wasn't too much kind of concrete um, commitments. That those will come, um, certainly not out, um, certainly outside of the NDCs, which we saw as well, which which um, we have done quite a comprehensive break, breakdown of on, on PV Tech. So um, be sure to check that out if you're unclear around what is included in those. Um, but certainly on the fringes, there's um, the talk really did stem around the phasing out of coal um, and what that might mean, and, and obviously that the change in language from phase out to phase down. Um, there's um, obviously the UK government have been quite quick to champion the, the commitments which were signed at, um, during COP, and kind of the 
the direction of travel that, that, that they put it on. And there's been some quite interesting discussion around that, certainly certainly in the UK on a, on a political front. Um, the leader of the opposition in the UK, Keir Starmer, um, made a point earlier this week, um, and I believe he was referencing um, an assessment of uh, the coal phase down commitments at, at COP that was um, put together by AFP. Um, but but his, his quote in particular suggested that the government, this is the UK government, claimed that 190 countries and organisations agreed to end coal, but on closer inspection, only 46 of those were countries. Of those, only 23 were new signatories, and of those 23, 10 did not even use coal. So that leaves 13 countries um, that were kind of championed at COP, and of those 13 that remained, they did not include the biggest coal users in the world. So, yes, it's a good thing that this commitment has continued to build, that, that there will be an, an ever-diminishing um, use of coal globally, but the, the kind of the heavy lifting which needs to be done wasn't achieved at COP. So <clears throat> I know that the um, Alex Sharma, who's um, COP26 president, was very quick to say um, this is the death knell for coal, uh, for coal, but it's not the, it's certainly not in the coffin and it's certainly not being put back into the ground uh, at all. So we do need to continue that momentum. And obviously the, the next big thing for us um, kind of globally and then where the, where the industry moves from, from COP26 is going to be those um, 2030 updates, which are due next year obviously a lot of attention is going to fall on what happens or what kind of commitment is, is forthcoming from China and Russia and other big polluters. Um, Russia obviously absent throughout the entire process. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's something, you know, something else worth mentioning, I think, is that, you know, the emphasis on coal still seems to be stronger in developing countries. And, you know, there's this always long been this dynamic about whether developing countries should or shouldn't have the same access to the sorts of uh, technologies that propelled economic growth in other places historically. So that is to say, basically, electricity demand is growing basically around the world, but it's probably more concentrated uh, in developing or emerging markets, I guess. Um, and those, as I say, tend to be uh, quite dependent on coal to to an extent. Uh, things like solar and battery storage uh, and other clean energy technologies give a lot of countries the opportunity to leapfrog that sort of fossil fuel entrenchment. You know, they don't necessarily need to have big district, uh, sorry, big centralized grid infrastructure that costs a lot of money uh, to build and maintain. They don't necessarily need to have quite as much thermal fossil fuel generation. Uh, as other places do, but there is, you know, it's fair to say that they do deserve to have access to energy that they can use productively. Um, and quite often, although in the long term, solar and energy storage can be very competitive uh, on cost with things like coal, uh, natural gas even, and other things, uh, at the moment, it's still pretty expensive for a developing country to to go into building that. So, you know, a lot of the projects we see being built tend to be contributed to by with development finance, whether grant funding or loans or, or other instruments. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the quite shameful thing regarding COP26 
uh, is that the commitment from uh, richer countries to help develop nations with their decarbonisation efforts, which I believe is uh, meant to be a hundred billion over ten years, sure. um, yeah. something something like that, right? Yeah, um, hasn't materialised. Uh, and you know, it's not to say there aren't sort of philanthropic uh, gestures or you know partnerships, economic partnerships between richer and poorer countries at the moment, but it does seem to be quite one-sided uh, and not necessarily in the interests of a just transition uh, that works for everybody, I guess. I think that I, I, the, the last point I'll make on COP is a really important one because it follows on from that just transition. One of the big things that I took away from um, being there in some of the sessions I sat in on, on the discussions that, that I had, um, the that bringing everyone along the, 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 the energy transition was, is just so, so critical and so important um, to avoid that kind of economic and well, certainly socioeconomic as well, um, disparity between kind of richer nations that can afford to get a head start on, on the energy transition um, and those that can't. And that extends all the way down to something is as trivial as the communities, which are um, in, almost at risk of being turned against the energy transition. And when you think of the, the, the jobs which stand to be lost as, as we phase out um, coal and, and other fossil fuel subsidies. So I think it was Jennifer Granholm who gave a really good, um, some really, really excellent remarks around, there is this huge, huge opportunity to bring everyone along this, this this energy transition in terms of making energy cheaper for uh, everyone, making it more um, sustainable, training people in these industries so that they are good, qualified, green jobs in the future. And all it needs is that kind of kick into, into a, 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 a real shift of um, speed and, and being basically kicked into another gear, really. Um, the, the potential for change is there. It just needs to be really driven. And it, it's nothing to be to be scared of or, or against that at the moment. It really is the, 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 it's the next shift and you just have to kind of embrace it. And of course, um, that needs a lot of policy and it needs a lot of kind of political direction. And we're certainly seeing a lot of that, um, particularly in the US, it has to be said, Andy. Um, a lot of US policymakers um were in attendance at cop um they got hopped up for the sugar from iron brew flew back to the us and passed infrastructure <laughs> bill i think that's how it works anyway that's the most casual reference to iron brew in <laughs> 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 an industry but for any any of our listeners out there uh that aren't in the uk uh iron brew is like the orange scottish coca-cola Oh, it's more than Coca-Cola. No, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's <laughs> analogous. It's anal analogous to Coca-Cola in that it's the most right. popular, popular soft drink in Scotland. And you basically if, can't really get it in uh, in England. Well, you can. If, uh, if, if you were if you were president of COP, yeah, that kind of reference might go over your head. It's, so essentially the Scottish event campus, which is where COP was held, they have like a distribution agreement with Iron Brew and it's one of the only soft drinks that you can actually buy in, <laughs> right, okay. in, the, in the campus. So 
I mean, there's there's different variants of it, but um, you kind of it's like Iron Brew is just there. It, it's kind of like this uh, omnipresent drink, which is just everywhere. So um, it, yeah, it's it certainly had uh, its um, its moment uh, in, in in the spotlight. Um, at least uh, that's what Alexander Ocasio Cortez definitely gave it some um, on social media. Um, but steering drastically back on topic, um, the in- infrastructure bill has has now passed. It has uh, been signed into law by President Joe Biden, and it's going to stimulate some real direction towards energy storage, Andy. Yeah, I mean, people don't just come here for insider industry knowledge on soft drink. They also come here for <laughs> their energy industry stuff. So, yeah, so... The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was uh, expected to be hugely transformative for the clean energy industry. Uh, Obviously, the area I look most closely at is energy storage. So I'll just talk about that uh, side of it for a minute or two. Um, But in the event, it's not quite the absolute game changer. Uh, It's kind of half half a game changer, uh, if you will. Um, So insofar as the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, IIJA, uh, sets aside something like $1.2 trillion of investment measures into the US's infrastructure. And a big part of that is climate decarbonization and making the electricity system more resilient. So that's a a really important application of, of energy storage is to make the costs of transmitting and distributing electricity less expensive and to make it more reliable. So what it really means is, you know, we've talked in previous podcasts about there's a large amount of money going towards various things. Um, And you can read about this in my uh, collection of comments from industry folk uh, that was published on Energy Storage News about a week ago. Uh, You got things like $3 billion for manufacturing, half a billion dollars for energy storage demonstration projects through a new uh, office created called the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations within the Department of Energy. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of goodies in there, but they are mostly uh, impetus on the supply side, nearly all on the supporting manufacturing of uh, energy storage and other clean energy equipment. Uh, some of it is deployment for resiliency programs. What it didn't include or doesn't include is the investment tax credit for standalone energy storage, uh, which has been described as the number one priority uh, by the Energy Storage Association uh, for reducing the cost of energy storage projects and increasing demand. Um, It would significantly lower the cost of energy storage, but about 30%, I believe, of projects only currently applies to energy storage systems deployed at the same time as solar and charging with more than 75% from the solar array. So it can't be charged, you know, with off-peak grid energy, even though that is lower carbon than peak, you know, using peak grid energy or using fossil fuels during that time. So the ITC was missing. Um, There was a... I mean, I wouldn't say it was a sense of disappointment because I think by the time, you know, we've talked about this infrastructure bill before on the pod and it's been such a long road to getting it signed. Like in some ways that's understandable because it is huge. 
but in other ways, you just think, just get on and invest in infrastructure. You know, I think it's pretty important really? to have have roads, you know, and, and things like other stuff that isn't necessarily the energy story, you know, the energy part of the energy story. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it wasn't included. Um, nonetheless, the legislation was welcomed and it is strongly thought that the Build Back Better legislation, which is another uh, conspiracy theorist favourite at the moment, um, if you're in the darker reaches of the Twitter sphere. Um, but Build Back Better is, you know, more investment in the US economy and in U- US society. And that does, as it stands, uh, include the investment uh, tax credit. So in all, a historic bill, but as I say, half a game changer. Um, and President Biden himself said that the together Build Back Better and the Infrastructure Act are the two largest um, legislative moves to combat climate change uh, that the US has seen. Um, and one one group that commentated to us, uh, STEM Inc., uh, which is uh, STEM Incorporated, uh, US energy storage company, uh, said that the really good thing about the uh, infrastructure bill is that it sort of signals a truce between moderates and progressives within the Democratic conference and paves the way for them to stay united in order to get the Build Back Better Act passed. And my final word on that is a really exciting thing is that the infrastructure bill is bipartisan. So it was signed by or created by uh, politicians from both Democrat and Republican persuasions in the US, which is frankly something that, you know, let's say smack ban three years ago, couldn't really seem possible, I guess. Um, but yeah, have you you looked into the the solar side of it? Was there that much on solar, or you know, what else? So the, we got? I, basically, all the, the solar side of it is, like you say, very much entrenched in the build back better side of the 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 coin, which is uh, very much on, on, on Biden's desk at the moment. Um, the ITC extension for solar um, and the clean energy provision there is 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 entrenched in that. So we're yet to see. Any real movement aside, obviously they, they need to appease um, two senators in particular, um, Manchin and Cinema, to get to get those across across the line. So the industry kind of waiting with bated breath. But there has been um, quite a lot of kind of certainly good news um, in, in on Solis direction elsewhere. Um, on the policy front, um, the Department of Commerce has rejected the. Um, petition around alleged circumvention of anti-dumping and countervailing duties. Um, so there will be no extension of tariffs to Southeast Asian solar manufacturers, which has drastically changed the forecast for module supply to the US. Um, and likewise, we had a bit of a, sur- a bit of a surprise announcement earlier this week uh, with the news that um, the exemption for bifacial panels uh, from Section 201 duties, which was unceremoniously dumped by Trump in his last few weeks in office, um, was essentially reinstated because um, a court in the US, uh, uh, the Court of International Trade, ruled that Trump overstepped his authority in removing the exemption in the first place. So um, Trump found to have no regard for authority shock essentially. Um, so two, two huge, big, um, important pieces of news. We've also had some guidance or some updated guidance for, around the withhold release order, 
um, which we've written about on PBTech Premium this week as well, which you can check out. Uh, basically, things moving very much in the right direction um, and certainly look to have quite an impact on the cost of solar installers, which is something we've also seen. We'll have to touch on very briefly, I think, Andy, but um, poly uh -huh. silicon price forecasts are kind of, they're still massively high. We expect there could be something of a, another spike in pricing early next year as um, the next kind of purchasing round begins and uh, people start to stockpile ahead of Chinese New Year. So we're waiting for um, to see how, how much that materializes, but kind of better news um, from the US National Renewable Energy Laboratory who have found um, the cost of solar and energy storage in the US keeps falling. Certainly does. Oh, sorry, you needed a takeaway on that, don't you? Um, yeah, so there was the, uh, the, the annual edition of the uh, NREL's, uh, sorry, US National Renewable Energy Laboratory or NREL, uh, their annual benchmarking exercise for the cost of solar PV and energy storage. Now, you can get the full 62-page report for free from NREL's website. Feel free to do that, of course. Um, but yeah, so in a very, very short sort of, uh, to, the, to the extent that I understand it, I guess, uh, the costs of every type of solar and storage pretty much fell by between, let's say, I want to say 9%, uh, although there were some exceptions, at, and about 13% over the Q1 2020 to the first quarter of 2021. So after accounting for all of that, researchers found the cost of, just to give you some examples, the cost of a 100 megawatt utility scale single axis solar plant fell by 12.31% uh, from $1.02 per watt DC to 89 cents per watt DC in just a year. Uh, whereas install costs for a 60 megawatt slash 240 megawatt hour standalone battery energy storage system uh, fell by 13.14% uh, from $437 per kilowatt hour to $379 per kilowatt hour. So, I mean, I think, you know, as with polysilicon, even with the price of modules, there will be some buffeting and some spikes and up and downs in various costs. But I think the overall story is that, you know, the continuing decline of uh, energy storage and solar PV and the two in combination uh, is pretty strong as things like uh, system design, technology improvements, as well as, you know, improving knowledge base of people who install and design systems uh, really goes up and up. Uh, I think one interesting takeaway is that scale matters. So the cost reductions were across the board the greatest for utility scale, a little bit less for commercial and industrial scale, and then a bit less again uh, for residential scale. So yeah, really interesting stuff, definitely worth a look into. Uh, probably not the be all and end all sort of uh, resource in terms of you know researching on on prices and costs, uh, but certainly very thorough. Uh, certainly very interesting, and I feel like I've uh, got a pretty good story out of that. Uh, so thank you very much, Enrol, 
for putting in the hard yards on that. <laughs> Perfect. I think um, uh, we'll, we'll hold it there. We're, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but when we're back, um, I actually had the pleasure of speaking to a couple of um, industry experts around COP26, um, working in collaboration with Solar Energy UK once again, um, to really glean some really uh, interesting insights from from not just the summit, but where <clears throat> where our solar and storage industries are heading into what's a crucial decade. So um, we'll see you very shortly. Excellent. Can I just say bye for now then? And thanks everybody for listening and keep listening on for those uh, interviews. Solar Energy UK is working with leading businesses to build a clean energy system for everyone's benefit. As an established trade association, we provide market intelligence, unrivaled networking and thought leadership with over 240 member companies in the UK and beyond. Together, we are paving the way for solar to deliver 40 gigawatts by 2030. For more information about how your business can get involved, visit solarenergyuk.org. And welcome back to the November episode of the Solar Media Podcast. Once again, we're very much dedicating this section of the episode to proceedings at COP26. Um, it's worth noting that at the time of the record, um, the proceedings weren't quite finished. They were heading into um, extra time, if, if we could kind of borrow that sporting uh, sporting terminology. But, but joining me now, um, we have Jason Howlett, who, who's Managing Director um, at uh, International Solar Wholesaler and Distributor CGEN Limited. Um, Jason, I understand you were at, at COP26, you had a couple of days up in Glasgow. Um, what were your overriding thoughts from, from the summit and uh, having been there and, and seen it in the flesh? Yeah, hi Liam. Um, yeah, I was really fortunate enough to be part of Solar Energy UK and the Global Solar Council's uh, two-day event uh, being held up in, uh, in Glasgow. Uh, the overriding aspect that really came across for me was this desire for action. Um, it, it was fascinating. I, I literally stepped off the train and um, met by an extinct, uh, extinction rebellion protest march. And I thought, you know, this is there's a real public sentiment of, of they want global leaders to really make a difference now. And, uh, and that's really being carried across by a lot of smaller nations who are really demanding that the um, that the larger polluters really take some action and some leading action to uh, to make a difference, and uh, and I think there's there's this overwhelming sentiment now that something really does have to change. I know it was sort of badged as being the best last chance to make a difference, uh, and to a large extent, a lot of people really do want action now and uh, and less words and and really more focus on on doing something rather than just talking about doing something. And it, to, to a certain electric extent, how is that cementing solar's role in that action? Is that, has that become any clearer to you having been at COP or kind of from the, from the developments that we've seen at the summit? Yeah, I think it, it's really come across that renewable energy um, in general has to play a massive part of the future, um, uh, combined with uh, hydrogen and, and maybe even nuclear. But renewable energy with wind and solar has to really step up uh, and solve many of the problems that are being demanded from uh, from from people around the world. The planet demands that we, we have to solve uh, and, and end fossil fuel. Um, reliance and burning of coal and oil 
And so whilst not, not specifically, um, I've not felt there's been a real shift in saying things need to be done more with solar, but this underlying factor around the renewable energy focus, and I think we came away from the two days very clear and very energised um, to be part of something that, that can really make a difference. And as we've seen solar really start to gain traction around the world and, and Seijun being a, uh, an international player, we see this massive demand for solar uh, in Europe, in, in Africa, and uh, and that's becoming more and more prevalent because it's an accepted technology. People understand it a little bit more. It's simple, it's established, um, and, and can be a trusted technology to provide a difference. So I think what we've really seen um, coming out of this is is solar has a massive part to play in the future of uh, the, of saving the planet. And when it comes to solar specifically, what are you seeing really drive deployment or procurement in, in perhaps in, in your case both um in the uk and internationally and and has what you've seen and what you've kind of felt at cop has that caused any reassessment of those factors i think for us what we've seen and i'll talk primarily about the uk in the first instance is there's been a lot of drive for decarbonization um we've also seen this massive increase in in residential um uh, uh, installations too and I think COVID um, and the lockdown has created quite a, uh, a healthy bank balance for many people who can are able to to pay as we call it and and they've been able to people have I think it was estimated about 150 billion by the Office of National Statistics that went into savings accounts because people couldn't spend money they were in lockdown so what we've seen is a lot of people now are utilizing that money to um, enhance homes and solar has been one of the big winners in that because uh, with interest rates being so low um, money sat in the bank is is basically doing nothing investing in your home investing in solar is is really a good economical uh, solution so energy prices increasing uh, and will increase again in the spring as the energy price cap goes up people are, are get really getting behind solar as being actually this is something i can do and the public's acceptance of solar and the increasing uh, understanding of the value of solar on a property uh, as highlighted by one of the solar energy uk's uh, recent reports everything is really mounting to the public's understanding that again they've got to do something different and that really came across again during uh, the cop discussions that the general public are now really stepping up certainly in the uk what we see in other countries like uh, like south africa is is energy reliance and being able to rely on the grid um or not being able to rely on the grid uh, more to the point is driving then this necessity to have energy and energy security and then through the industrial and commercial rooftop space where we again are very prevalent there's this drive from a lot of organizations and a lot of companies who uh, really do um, wish to be seen as being um, at net zero so you see a lot of supermarkets who did very well during um, the last 12, 18 months, um, really investing in their uh, their assets and their stores, installing solar, you see the likes of Lidl and Tesco, um, really getting on board with this and putting solar on all their spare rooftop and, uh, and really positioning themselves to be a, a net zero companies. And more and more of these organizations are really starting to say, 
actually we need to be net zero. We need to show ourselves as, as being environmentally sustainable. Our consumers and our customers are demanding that we are, um, are a more sustainable company. So these are some of the key things that we've, we've really seen that are driving the, uh, the deployment of, uh, of solar, uh, both at a residential and at a uh, commercial rooftop uh, level. And it's, I, I guess now it, it, we have, we're at this kind of precipice where soda's really going to start to ramp up and just at the right time, but equally the headwinds of the sector are, are pretty unprecedented in terms of the supply chain challenges. How, how obviously you're, you're at the kind of, um, at the front end of that, what, what are you seeing on, on the supply chain constraints and how do you expect those to persist? Yeah, I've said really we're at a tipping point um, for solar, uh, and there's several factors that come into that. And I think if um, before I talk about probably the supply chain constraints, I think one of the factors we've got now is this this real acceptance and understanding that that it is a solution that is readily available. We've got uh, um, individuals at, at consumer level and companies really getting behind this. And I think what we now need is this this stability, um, and that does transcend into the supply chain too but stability coming from um, uh, connection approvals from planning approvals from consistency of application of all these great words and and, uh, rhetoric that's been talked about but that needs to be translated into action and these are one of the things that we've talked about uh, quite a lot over the last couple of weeks is now it's time for the industry to step up and really to to get to the forefront of of taking the initiative of making sure solar comes forward. And what we've seen over the last um, 12 months in particular is an incredibly volatile supply chain. We, uh, and, and interestingly, and I made this point uh, while in Glasgow, many of the factors are also um, uh, environmental uh, factors. So we've had flooding impacts within some of the supply chain factories. We've had um, earthquakes uh, and other natural disasters impacting the production of solar materials. And so this year, more than anything, we've seen this massive volatility, particularly in module um, uh, production. Um, glass price increases, aluminium price increases, copper, silver, silicon. Um, and then combined with that, we've seen uh, huge amounts of disruption in the logistics, um, bringing containers in from, from China, there's been issues of getting the containers, lack of ships to bring the containers across, congestion at um, receiving ports, particularly in the UK. Brexit compounded some of those challenges. So we've just seen this massive challenge then of getting stock into the country. So stability of the supply chain is going to be really important going forward. And that's one of the things we spend a lot of time with in CGEN is really forecasting and trying to work with our suppliers. And we have some fantastic suppliers who we work with. And really working together to say, this is where the industry is going. This is where the the, the country is going. And we need to make sure we've got that stock um, into the country. And, and, and we've done you know, significant volumes this year, much, much greater than um, in previous years. And it's, it's really ensuring we've got the stock to supply the installers and all these end users who, who are demanding the solution. And that's one of our, our singular biggest challenges. And we see that going forward. It's probably going to remain volatile for the next um, six months at least. We think things will start to stabilise. And we've seen that start to have an impact on some of the utility scale schemes that we don't really um, get involved in too much. Um, 
but we've not really seen that impact on the commercial and the residential because having that stock and having that availability, even though the pricing is increasing, um, because energy price is also increasing at the same time, the payback and the driver for doing it hasn't actually changed. And people are really starting to get into, well, actually, if I've got to spend another £100 on my modules on my home, it's not the end of the world if I'm investing 10000 if I'm, I've got a battery system as well. Another £100 actually doesn't make or break that, that sentimental and feeling I've got to take control. And, uh, and we've talked a little bit about this over um, the past year or more, that having that security in an uncertain world of your energy at least gives people comfort too. So we see, we see a lot of factors really going, going the way of solar. Excellent. But it sounds as if even though we have these, these headwinds and, and everything else, which is cause the volatility, the volatility um, as you speak, we have just as many drivers that are really pushing solar on, onto rooftops and, and into ground mount installations, not just in, in UK, but Europe-wide and, and worldwide too. Yeah, completely. Uh, that's what, exactly what we're seeing, Liam. There's, there's, whilst there's, there's headwinds and there's enough reasons not to, there's actually, we've, we've, as I say, we've got to that tipping point and people are really now driving this. And, and this is all we want now is, is stability in the industry. Um, it, it's great we've come out of a, um, a feed-in tariff and, and tariff-induced um, support. The industry is self-sustaining. We just kind of need to be left to get on with it. And one of the statements I made on one of the panel discussions is actually this is now our time to to take the action because if we wait for governments if we wait for legislation if we wait for things to change it won't happen quick enough and i urged everybody whilst um, i was in glasgow that as a collective industry we really need to be on the front foot and we need to be making these decisions and let the regulators and let the the, the rule makers catch up with us and let's get ahead of it uh, of of where they are because we know what's required and we know that the people and um and businesses are requiring it from us excellent well thank you very much jason for joining me um and we hope to hear as, as much progress from season as possible in the future great thank you Liam. pv tech has been the world's leading source of solar news and opinion for more than a decade but now pv tech premium goes one stop further giving you business critical insights developed to empower decision making throughout the solar value chain. For just US$249 per year, you can receive exclusive insights, analysis and interviews, while also accessing our comprehensive back catalogue of technical papers and a host of other benefits. Head on over to PB Tech to find out more. And joining me now is Marissa Corder, who's General Counsel at Independent Power Producer Sonodix. Um, Marissa, your your kind of standpoint from Sonodix, obviously, um, global interest in solar. Um, what was your kind of overriding verdict from from COP twenty six? Now that we're we're past the summit stage and, and reflecting on the deal that was agreed. So as we went into COP, I think there was a this expectation. This was a critical year at the start of a critical decade for achieving net zero. And from my perspective, it was extremely important that we did exactly what COP was set out to do, which was actually turn this ambition into action. I think it's no surprise that there's been a number of countries that have pledged to achieve net zero emissions. Um, That number has grown rapidly, but the rhetoric around net zero has yet to be fully supported by clear or credible policies or action plans or measures to really support the further deployment of clean energy. So 
when I look at what actually happened at COP, I think it's been an important reminder that that conversation needs to be ongoing and needs to include as many people as possible to give that fight against climate chance a real, excuse me, the fight against climate change a real chance. So from my perspective, I think I'm optimistic to see these stronger and new commitments that will lead us hopefully to this you know, faster, better, better funded transition to clean energy. Um, and so overall I left feeling good, um, but I still think there's a lot of work to do to ensure that net zero by 2050 is, is a reality. Right, and I, th- I think one one of the kind of if reflecting on the agreement that that, that we've seen and, and has been agreed, or, or the Glasgow Climate Pact, I should say, um, one of the big sticklers was the the watering down of language relating to um, fossil fuel subsidies and, and a coal phase down rather than the phase out. That paragraph also included um, some quite. Uh, important text relating to a rapid deployment of clean energy technologies, and we, we would kind of expect solar to play a pivotal role in that. So, what, what's your opinion on on what role can solar play in really helping them meet those those uh, net zero targets um, that, that you speak of? So, from my perspective, solar is a part of the solution. I'd love it to be a large part of the solution, and that's a biased response, I suppose, because I work for a solar company. But I do think the potential to provide clean energy from solar, is it's really immeasurable, right? But I think there's some improvements that need to be made um, in both solar and energy storage to really make it the uh, future solution that we're all looking for. And I don't think there's surprises to anyone, you know, battery efficiency improvements in storage to help solar become a 24-hour solution or advance, advancements in solar technology in terms of, you know, bifacials or more efficient solar cells. Um, but generally speaking, I see it being, you know, a, a very large piece of the energy matrix moving forward as it should be. And though those kind of those technological pieces are obviously only part of the puzzle. Mm. Um, what's, what's really needed to sway the political movement behind solar PV? Because obviously there's quite a, a disparate um, view of, of the role solar can play. Yeah, I think there's so. We've got to deal with that intermittency issue, which is what I was raising around the 24-hour solution sure. for solar. So finding a reliable, cost-effective solution for 24-hour renewable energy um, is really critical to making solar viable and economical, I think, long-term. Uh, but beyond that, there are a few key challenges that I think we need to be thoughtful around. Although solar is a source of good, fundamentally, um, there are issues that, if not managed appropriately, could result in increased regulatory restrictions or delays in scrutiny by lenders or other key stakeholders. And what am I talking about? I think there are a few key points. So scope three emissions, for example, and supply chain issues. The sectors had relatively significant carbon footprint associated with the manufacture of its panels. Um, you may be aware, but this is most of them are produced in coal-powered Chinese factories. So some of these factories have been implicated excuse me, in kind of systematic human rights abuses, particularly in areas of China, and there's been resulting restrictions and import bans, for example. So we need to sort that and make sure there's transparency in our supply chain and that these scope three emissions are are addressed appropriately. There's another issue with end-of-life disposal. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but by 2050, the most recent IRENA report predicts that there'll be approximately 80 million metric tons of solar panel that will have reached the end of their life cycle. And 
unless we have sustainable ways to repair, reuse, and recycle, a good portion of that could be, you know, sent to landfill. So obviously the focus on the recycle, reuse, repair is significant for our industry. And there are a few other topics that I think need to be managed in this biodiversity impact, for example. So we've seen an uptick in community opposition um, because of the unique impact on biodiversity for solar, right? Whether it be land clearance or impact on sensitive species and ecosystems. And I think the right kinds of solar companies are focusing on minimizing, mitigating, or not having this impact whatsoever. Um, and generally speaking, just making sure you bring the communities along with you in the journey. Right. So we're seeing, let's say, increasing community and local government opposition, largely related to these issues we're talking about, whether it be biodiversity or kind of decommissioning of the plants at the end of life or scope three emissions and supply chain. And all of that really needs to be, I think, carefully handled and transparently handled to make sure that solar can succeed. And I guess just just extending on that final point, some of that will play a, a crucial role in the life expectancy of, of solar projects because we're now starting to see um, what was a commonly termed 25-year operational lifetime of a solar project. These are now 35, 40 years, perhaps even beyond that as well. No, exactly. I think it, it links into what we were talking about before, like key improvements in solar and energy storage that will be critical to the success of solar, I think will also be critical to some of these other, other issues. So it's it's improved efficiency, so you can perhaps take a smaller footprint, right? It's a different technology that allows better output um, with less land clearance, right? It's, it's thinking through those, taking advantage of those um, technological improvements to be sure that what we're doing, again, is the most thoughtful way to do it at its most basic level. Great, great. And I, I guess lastly, just, just to round off, some of the obviously have huge international footprint um, in terms of where it's active. What, what, what do you see as the main drivers for, for the company at the, at the moment? So, I mean, if, if I think about our company, at its simplest, we are a mission-driven business where our purpose is to harness the power of the sun to build a bright future. Right? And so every solar project that we do is contributing to this larger mission and purpose. And that's really important for us. So in terms of ambition, we want to continue to expand our existing footprint Right, in the countries where we already operate. So uh, we've got a continued focus on, on both acquisition and development in you know, Europe and, and LATAM. Um, and also, in we're, we're heavily active in Japan. So we'd like to continue those act efforts, but also, I think, look to expand into new jurisdictions. Um, so make sure that we are bringing clean energy to as many communities as we possibly can. I mean, that's really... Maybe a basic answer, but fundamentally what we're trying to achieve. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you very much for joining me, Marissa. It's been great to get your insight into what's a, a quite densely uh, interesting and, and quite complicated topic at times. But obviously, coming out of COP, it's um, hugely important for us to, to really tackle that. Well, thank you for having me. And joining me now is Ivan Ivanov, who's Business Development Director for Digital Power UK at Huawei. Um, Ivan, I think obviously we, we've now had COP, um, it's, um, we're aware of the verdict, we, we know, we know uh, all about the Glasgow Climate Pact. Um, it does place more importance on um, the, the UK's target um, of deriving um, 100% of its power from renewable sources by 2035. What, what's your view, what, what's needed for that to be achieved now? 
Hi, Liam. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today. Um, and good um, um, afternoon to everybody who will listen us or good morning, depending on the, where they are. So it was great. Um, actually, I attended COP um, um, the other week and I have been part of a couple of panel discussions around uh, what, what um, we will achieve this time after COP. Um, so I am pretty excited, um, honestly speaking, um, uh, with this COP because I have um, um, some expectation from the government that uh, finally we have our targets clear. Uh, but uh, what I would like to see um, further is uh, more legislation around uh, these targets and to see a plan on how actually the government uh, will achieve those targets. Because um, we all know that... Uh, the challenges are a lot. It's not only a challenges from, um, from the technology itself. Uh, there are a lot of challenges from the government itself uh, because we can see that um, a lot of projects actually, they don't lack of funding. Um, a lot of projects um, actually lack of uh, um, a local council permissions, for example, or um, grid uh, approvals and etc., etc. So um, what I would like to see personally and uh, from Huawei perspective is a more clear plan on uh, how we will hit those ambitious targets because um, on one hand we have these targets which are legally binding and on the other hand we have uh, uh, technology providers and project developers and investors which want to see how we can basically materialize uh, to, to actually um, make these projects happening. And grids and um, permitting, those those are two real prominent obstacles and they've come up in plenty of discussions before um, and um, I dare say they'll, they'll continue to be a thought in, inside the site. Um, what's, what's Huawei's kind of take on, on public opinion around solar and, and how, how can we drive more public adoption of solar and storage? Well, this is actually a very good question. So I think we need to um, we need to promote more renewables, and uh, we need to actually go to um, explain how those renewables works. Uh, because, for example, for instance, I have been meeting some people uh, the other week, and they was asking me, okay, but is it solar working in the UK? Because you know, um, it's not sunny all the day, uh, or all the time, or through the year. So sure. I think, um, yeah, I really think that we need to promote more the renewables and explain more um, um, how the renewables are working. Um, of course, we need to educate the, the new generation, which is actually very important uh, because they will be growing up with this idea, what is renewables, how they support, um, you know, the environment and so on. So what I think is that uh, we need a campaign um, where we can actually explain what is going on, how this will impact the environment and the businesses, and, and why we are doing it. Excellent, excellent. And um, obviously that, that campaign can help drive adoption. What are you seeing that's really um, driving the, the, the consumer uptake of soda? What's, what's the main cause for people to be uh, taking solar or, or and or storage at, at the moment um well if we are talking about the domestic installations the driver of the market um, i would say it's not only one um first is uh, we see a volatility now on the price market for energy 
and this will actually will be increasing in future from from our perspective at least um so the the domestic um, um, owners i would say that they want to produce this is the mindset which we see now is uh, they want to produce their own energy um and they want to be consuming this energy so we are talking here about uh, solar plus storage for example in future and they will be not uh, that much exposed on the market volatility in the future. Of course, um, uh, more domestic um, and commercial um, actually owners, uh, they want to um, cut their uh, carbon footprints. And uh, they see a lot of, um, you know, ongoing around the media now, around COP26, for example, and the climate change and so on and so forth. So I think... Um, uh, people are still start to realizing um, that they can actually contribute, that everyone actually con- can contribute towards net zero. It's not only a government's responsibility, but it's also a public responsibility. Excellent, excellent. I think that really, that really, that last point really stems on from something that we that we've spoken about earlier on the podcast around the idea of this just transition and bringing everyone along and making sure that. Um, everyone has the option or the the capabilities to really take part and, and exactly. realize that the, realize the benefits of renewable power as well. Yeah, actually, you know, this is uh, this is all about. It's not uh, that we say we will produce the energy from today from renewables, uh, not from nuclear or coal. It is actually the transition of our mindset. This is what is important. So we need to change first ourselves if we want to change the future. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Ivan. It was um, really fascinating to get your insight into what's uh, hopefully a, a, a landmark moment for the sector. Thank you very much, Liam, and hope to um, see you soon. Thank you.